Squire, and welcome to Pop Screen, part of the Geek Show Podcast Network. We are that corner of the Geek Show that likes to deal with the good, the bad, and the inexplicable of movies either starring about or by pop stars. No, the podcast covers such a broad range of musical and cinematic genres, from documentaries to science fiction, from country and western to hip hop. I'm your host, Graham Williamson. I'm a writer for the Geek Show, of course, as well as Horrified, Byline Times, and We Are Cults. And I've been joined this week by. Uh, Mark Cunliffe. I also write for The Geek Show. I write for We Are Cult as well. Um, you can find me on Letterboxd and I have written for Arrow Film, various essays, and also a chapter in Scarred for Life, Volume 2. Indeed, and it's that Scarred for Life zone that we're kind of in now. We're going a bit hauntological, aren't we? I suppose so, yeah, yeah, I guess so. I find every BBC TV play from this eva to have a bit of that atmosphere to it, I suppose, because they're not exactly sort of, they're they're not exactly forgotten things, but they are very hard to find these days. Yeah, yeah. If you didn't know they existed, then it's not on your radar kind of thing, yeah. True. And it's it's a testament to how off the radar they are that the first film we're going to do from Second City Firsts, a run of half-hour plays uh, produced by the BBC during, uh, was it just the 1970s? Just the 70s yeah, it was. Thing? It was between 73 and 78. Right. Um, there was uh, an anthology series, sort of like the kid brother to play for today, I guess. Yeah, so yeah. they were little half-hour snippets from uh, Pebble Mill Studios in Birmingham, hence the title "Second City," and Indeed. first because they were um, first-time writers. Oh, I didn't know that bit. That's interesting. Yeah, they were mainly. For, I mean, although writers kept returning to the well, they were they were given the break on on Second City first mainly. I think it was. I think specifically first-time writers, but also the, you get first-time directors as well. Right, right. Because the first one we're going to do is uh, Glitter by Tony Bicat. Um And this was recently repeated along with two other Second City First plays on BBC4. And even in this BBC-approved remastered re-screening, uh, the opening sequence has like little VHS lines across the bottom, little bits of VHS interference. It does, doesn't it? I um I have this on uh, bootleg, and I thought, oh, ah. it's gonna be a, it's gonna be on BBC Four. It'd be a nice polished up um yeah copy of it. But no, it's literally the only uh, the only copy in existence, I guess, with the little VHS marks underneath it. Yeah. Which is quite shocking. I mean, yeah. Mark and I are both big Doctor Who fans, so we are more than most people aware of how appalling the BBC's archive policies during these times were. But it is still quite a jolt to see something on TV nowadays with VHS interference lines. Yeah, it really is, and especially in the world of like digital television now. You know, everything's yeah. so crisp and uh, high definition and what have you that you see something that needs auto tuning. You know, <laughs> get the tracking. <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's it's quite a shock to the system, really. But I mean, you, you touched upon that idea of how um, just how awful the BBC treated their own productions at the time. Yeah, this um, I made a little note before we before we started. There were fifty three films 
in the Second City Firsts uh, series between right. 73 and 78. 21 of them are missing, believed, wiped. It's quite astonishing, yeah. really, isn't it? And this is something that you're never going to understand if you, you're not into archive television. I mean, if anyone's thinking of going back and watching, say, Breaking Bad after Better Call Saul ended, you're never going to be in a situation where anyone says, oh, 15 and 20 percent of that show doesn't exist anymore. But, you know, we've put together some like off air recordings with photos over them. Yeah. It's just unimaginable that this would ever happen now. It's bizarre, isn't it? And, you know, it's funny you should mention that because um as we're recording it this week, they've uh, announced series two of Doctor Who is getting the Blu-ray box set oh, treatment. Yes. Um, yeah. Some fans are already complaining that um, episodes that are missing haven't been animated specifically for the uh, the box set. It's like, yeah, yeah just, I mean... just you know, they, these fans clearly didn't grow up in the nineties when all we had was telly snap. Yes. <laughs> and a target novelization. <laughs> it's, like, it's quite a weird thing because obviously uh, on the Geek Show Patreon, I've been going through this long process of reviewing uh, all of the classic series of Doctor Who. And occasionally you just have to think, you know, all right, I enjoyed that to a certain level, but how much would I enjoy the Myth Makers if I could see it move and someone's mum yeah. wasn't doing the hoovering in the background? <laughs> You know, it's... Yeah. <laughs> but oh, they still do exist in however yes, yes. straight and a circumstance they are. And the first one we're going to talk about is Tony B. Cat's Glitter, which is, in a lot of ways, the ultimate pop screen movie. I mean, you could not get more pop screeny than this. That's true, yeah. I mean, it, it sort of uh, kickstarts the career of Toy Wilcox. Yes. Um, there is uh, a sort of journeyman musician in it called um, Dixie Dean. I don't know what his real mm. name is, but you know he gets to uh, he gets to do his his bit as well. And then you have an appearance by none other than Noel Tidy Beard Edmonds himself. <laughs> <laughs> You're one of my absolute fantasy careers is explaining <laughs> the career of Noel Edmonds to foreigners. I just think you would get the best reactions out of that. It would be like a reverse reaction video where the person who knows all this stuff is the one who's explaining it and the people who don't are the audience who are just sat there. Really? Someone died on this and he, yeah. he just went straight back into the studios if nothing had happened. It's mental, isn't it? Absolutely mental yeah. that when you consider it now. That was the, the late breakfast show, is it called? It was, yes. Yeah. yeah. And you just think that like it's like yes somebody's died but he's back on television next week you know it's yes. it's so strange whereas nowadays people get cancelled for like the slightest thing yeah the, <laughs> these days mark if you kill the member of public the public had a stunt gone wrong the walk brigade would be right on your back for that <laughs> But no, could you imagine that though? Could you? I mean, people go like, "Oh no, he said something here," or an old yeah. tweet from like twenty 
12 was weird, <laughs> in which he goes, I tell you what, you know, blah, 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 something racist or something, you know. And they're like, oh, no, he he's, his career is over. <laughs> Man kills somebody in a stunt. Back on television well. next week. And allowed to, well, yeah, yeah, we've got to be careful what we say here, haven't we? <laughs> Probably, yeah. Really. A show hosted by Noel Edmonds that had uh, Daredevil stunts featuring members of the public. And one Which of the members of the public. Idea, like, <laughs> even before anything goes wrong. Yeah, it's it's an odd one. I mean, he almost killed John Peel as well, didn't he, before that? Oh, God, yeah, that incredible yeah. footage where... Every time it comes, it cuts back to Edmonds. It's just like he's seeing the particularly ribald prank. And then it cuts back to Peel, who sounds terrified because he's just had a fucking car nearly hit him in the face. near-death experience, yeah. Yeah. But then to sort of like... He's become an even stranger figure now, though. I mean, that is odd enough. But he's really bizarre now. See, this is one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about this because I knew that yeah. we'd hit we'd hit gold with you and your uh, your obsession with no lemons. <laughs> <laughs> I heard uh, I, I heard an appearance he made on Jeremy Vine's Radio Two show, oh, where God. he was trying to communicate with people's pets on air, which. I mean, already there's about 20 things wrong with that sentence. And what I think gets to the essence of Edmonds, it's not that he's remarketed himself as this sort of great spiritual healer, um, but he's he's also remained just as chippy and petty as he always was on it. Like, he is trying to talk to someone's cat or someone's parrot or something and going, it's okay, I know you're on the BBC and they're not very nice, but it's okay. It's like even becoming an ascended cosmic master who can manipulate reality with his mind, as he is now, that's not the bit of Edmunds' career I have a problem with. I'm sure that all of that <laughs> is true, by the way. Um even that has not stopped him being very bitter at the BBC for cancelling Noel's house party. I mean, he claims to have got rid of cancer by using positive <laughs> thinking, but as he kind of thinking that he might have got cancer by just holding this grudge against the BBC for the past 20-odd years? <laughs> I mean, there's, there's an incredible John Ronson article uh, I don't know if you've read it, but from very early on in his comeback with Deal or No Deal. Uh, I don't think so. Oh, man, it's it's very good. I think he wrote it for The Guardian, so it's still available in their like, online archives. Now. Right. It's well worth digging out. But Ronson's angle on it is you can see how far like mystical and paranoid thinking has dug its, its fingers into the mainstream of British life by going backstage on Deal or No Deal and finding out that everyone from the contestants to the host is convinced that this tea time quiz show has some occult significance. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I just, that was just a weird series, that, wasn't it? I, I, yeah. It's, it's one of those things, isn't it, where if you're in a position where you can pull the trigger on something like that, 
it, it's probably going to work because it is basically the sort of silly guessing game you would play with your friends as kids, pumped up to be like a who wants to be a millionaire style I, quiz blockbuster. That is exactly it. It's a silly guessing game you'd play as kids in a school playground. You know, I've got something in this box, or have I? You know, um, yeah. But he would treat it like this sort of like a, a game of high stakes poker in the sense that he'd go, oh, I can yeah. see you. <laughs> I can see your game plan here. What game plan? You're just picking a box at random. <laughs> Why the is there a plan is, game plan? When you've asked to open a box, you pick a box and you open it. Now, an inexperienced player wouldn't know that. But... <laughs> I can see what you're doing here. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> the bank is going to respect you for this. What, for saying number 12 instead of number five well i don't i, I just didn't get it i, I, I don't get it I don't, i'm sorry i don't get it <laughs> yeah because when, when we first see edmunds in this he's a disembodied voice coming from a halo of light which i thought is probably how noel edmunds sees himself sees anyway. himself absolutely yeah i mean we should probably give this uh a bit of um background really because it just sounds yeah. like what the fuck's it what the fuck's Noel Edmonds doing <laughs> it, it uh, which like the play built around Noel Edmonds which would which you know horrifying. what the fuck's Noel Edmonds doing is um it's just a standard question you've got to ask yourself on a daily basis really isn't it <laughs> <laughs> but it's the story of um a girl Ty Wilcox and a boy Phil Daniels, who break into BBC Television Centre, uh, specifically the Top of the Pops stage, to perform on Top of the Pops uh, mm. in the middle of the night, I'm guessing. It's an abandoned stage, isn't it? It's an abandoned studio. Many questions um, are had in the the choice of setting for this, I think, yes. Yeah, also the fact that it doesn't look like the Top of the Pops studio anyway. To me, right. it didn't. I, I was I was kind of cooler with that. I thought, oh well, maybe it did look like that when there's no one in it. The bit, the big break in verisimilitude and the thing that you would think two young top of the pops fans would be aware of is that they seem intent on playing live there, which you yeah, on top of the pops in the seventies. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, um, no, but yeah, I hadn't thought of that actually. But yeah, the studio thing threw me. But but I yeah. mean, how typical? How typical of the BBC though? I suppose because it's Pebble Mill, it would that's oh, just dawned on me then. Because it's Pebble Mill, it wouldn't have been um, Television Centre anyway, would it? It would have been. They'd have bust them all to um, all the actors would have been uh, would, would have been yes. on location in Birmingham. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, but it's typical of the BBC, isn't it? You write a piece about. <laughs> the, you know, they arrive at the top of the pop studio, and somebody goes, "Well, we'll build a studio for that." And I said, "No, the yeah. top of the pop studio. <laughs> it's already there, guys." But just <laughs> there's no budget thought gone into it. Is there? None whatsoever. Although it, it's telling that, like you say, you don't think of it as being a pebble mill thing until you really sit down and concentrate, and because the whole piece is written with that kind of romance of television centre in mind, yeah. with that attitude, the television centre is the magic place where every door you open has another of your favourite shows behind it. 
Yeah, and it's got that kind of dreamlike, childlike uh, perspective in this, isn't it? When yeah. I first heard about it and read about it, I thought, oh, right, so it's Toy Wilcox and Phil Daniels. That's very mm. punk, isn't it? Automatically, yeah. that's very punk. Um, breaking into the top of the pop studio, wanting to play. I mean, that sounds like a really punk half hour. Yeah. And this is nothing. Punk sort of like feels like it's on the horizon, but not really. Punk is most palpable in it, I think whenever Toya Wilcox gets a close-up. She has yeah. that same kind of vengeful alertness in her eyes that John Higgs was writing about, was saying that, you know, John Lydon always had when he was with the Sex Pistols. And I think, I I, I may be wrong, I do not know anything about Tony Bicat, but I do not think that the writer of this was tuning into any kind of nascent punk scene i think all of that feeling comes from her performance i think you're right yeah i think it's telling that like the dixie dean character i can't think what he's mm. what he's real what um the character's name is i just know the the real name of dixie dean mm-hmm. uh, he sort of turns up he's like this drunken troubadour isn't he yeah uh, proper you know i mean he's less bob dylan and more dylan the hippie rabbits from the magic roundabout <laughs> <laughs> To yes, quote a joke from, I think that's a joke from Porridge originally, so I'm going to crib that. Um, but <laughs> the, if it was a really, uh, if, it, if it had its finger on the pulse of the burgeoning punk music scene, they would rip that guy to shreds and they don't. Yeah. And it's it's almost like, like oh, it's a star rather than yes. who's, this, who's this old has-been that's turned up, you know? There's actually more of that kind of conversation with Edmonds, who uh, yeah, ha- has yeah. who has to suffer Wilcox saying to him, "You must have been young once." <laughs> <laughs> it's an interest. It's a bold move for an incredibly vain man, really, isn't it? it? Is. Yeah, <laughs> but I then would... I suppose he's, I suppose he's just thinking, "Hey, I get to be in something other than children's television," or um... well, maybe yeah. I also wonder if, you know, he hadn't gone through the kind of career setbacks that gave him this Alan Partridge level of chippiness that he has now. Yeah, he was still he was still a a, a favourite, really, wasn't he, at the time? Absolutely, I mean, yeah. I, I mean, I think Saturday's Swap Shop had started, I think. I think you're right, yeah. There hadn't um, been anything he'd done that had failed at this point. And that's always a sort of a a moment where the true self is revealed, isn't it? Anyone can be a beloved superstar if everything they're in works. It's how you cope with your first absolute yeah. form that yeah. Yeah. That's true. And I think we've from on a slight parallel to that idea, and I think we've got to be grateful that um it was Noel Edmonds they chose for this. It could so easily be somebody like Jimmy Savile and we'd never be talking about this ever again. Yeah, yeah as, as problematic as Noel Edmonds is, he was one of those Top of the Pops producers who was not a paedophile, who were in pretty <laughs> short supply back then, I think. Very, very short supply. They're not sex pests or paedophiles that we know of, so that's, um, <laughs> that's, that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. 
because it's true. It could have it could have so easily been this thing that we don't talk about. Yeah. Apologies, listeners, if after this comes out, it's revealed that Noel Edmonds has groped someone's aura or something like that. <laughs> Can we just do a, a, a sort of um, backup, just in case? I'll go, yeah. I always knew there was something weird about him. Yeah. Just put that in and then you can just <laughs> go, with, you can go with that if anything does happen in between recording. <laughs> yes, that, that would be one of the stages. Normally, I find it very annoying when some celebrity falls from grace and everyone's like rushing to be the first to say, I was never a fan, never a fan. Yeah. Uh, but with Edmonds, I think I would probably struggle to uh, resist the temptation. It's really weird, isn't it? Because he did try to make a comeback not so long ago with um, I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, didn't he? And, uh, oh, yes. Yeah. The rather foolish general public. Well, I suppose because they were the most, the average age of people who watch I'm a Celebrity are probably not really Edmund's generation. So they voted him off like straight away. It's like, you fools, there's gold there. There's gold on that screen. <laughs> Who knows what would have happened if, if like somebody hadn't cleared the dunny out that day? He could have just gone ape. <laughs> I wanted it to be like Colonel Kurtz in Apocalypse Now. <laughs> it could have yeah, so easily absolutely. been. It could have so easily been Edward, sort of, or like scenes from the beach, you know. <laughs> just painted himself, just going oh, the horror, the horror. <laughs> I mean, that was the year when Nick Knowles was going around talking about his opinions on whether the moon landing happened. Yes, or not. yeah, yeah. Maybe so, I mean, we like did. The niche was filled, you know, when yeah. had his, his space co opted. That is very true. That is very true, yeah. But I, I remember um, people, I think it's that, what's that girl's name? It was in In Between Us. Oh, Emily Atak. That's the one, yeah, yeah. She was on um, yeah. Richard Herring's podcast, and she said, um, "Oh, he's lovely, Noel Edmonds." And Richard Herring was not convinced. You know? <laughs> <laughs> no, he's lovely. It's like, yeah, but he wasn't there that long enough to not be lovely, was he? <laughs> <laughs> so I imagine if anything did happen to Noel Edmonds, there'd be a lot of people going, "Oh, he's a lovely man. He's a lovely man." A bit, and a lot of other mm. people going. Mm. Yeah. Yes. Well, the ultimate test of this, obviously, is that episode of Brass Eye where Chris Morris invented the story oh. about Noel Edmonds going mad and killing Clive Anderson. And he was taking yeah. the thought, story well, around showbiz parties and interviewing people, and they were all going, Edmonds, really? You know, no one was going, get the fuck out. Come on, that's a major <laughs> story. Everyone seemed to have this attitude of, I mean, it's shocking, but the signs were there. They were always there, yeah. It's like the, the, my favourite one is um, John Chalice, spicy. He's like, yeah. no lemons. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. Race just sort of puts it in his, into part of his existing spiel and he's going ah, people like me, we're, we're rascals, but it's your, your Ungerford guys, your Noel Edmondses, they're the ones Those <laughs> you've got to watch out for It's always the quiet ones It's always the quiet ones 
<laughs> it's always the quiet ones with their own Saturday night BBC <laughs> show, as, as the quiet ones tend to have. <laughs> it's always the ones with the giant pink and yellow spotted best friend. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, probably true. If it turned <laughs> out that Michael Ryan did actually believe that Mr. Blobby was following him around, <laughs> yeah, it, would, it would fit. You know, I could believe it. <laughs> we must eventually stop being rude about Noel Edmonds and talk about Toya Wilkinson. <laughs> I get the feeling the subject will come round again. Probably will. It probably will. Do you know this is an interesting one as well because, um, it, like I say, it's sort of she was plucked from obscurity. Toya Wilcox. She was an extra mm. in. And somebody spotted her and thought, ah. And then this was like a sort of showcase, not only as a, a singer, but also an actor. And yeah. I believe after it was broadcast, she was sort of like courted by the National Theatre and record companies at the same time. I mean, that is huge. That is a proper, in a way that I don't think stars are made these days, isn't it? You know. It is a proper, like, the sort of thing that happens in Judy Garland movies, yes. Yeah, yeah. It's so weird. And you think, Tyra Wilcox, you know, because she's been around for that long. You, you, you sort of forget what a an impact she had when she just sort of burst on, on, on the screen, really. Um, she looks very, um, she's got that sort of, like, 20s look, 20s sort of, like, that the way Violent. that Roxy Music, uh, kind of. yeah, the way that Roxy Music sort of album cover started to update those those sort of like silent movie it girls mm. for the seventies. She's got that kind of look. So it's not it's not the one hundred percent punk Toya Wilcox. It's not the Toya Wilcox we meet in um, Jubilee, Jubilee, which we've talked about yeah. on, on this thingy on this podcast. Um, but yeah, she does stand out. Whereas. You, in contrast, you've got Phil Daniels with long hair, which um, you don't tend to expect at a sort of bum fluff tash. You don't really expect that from Phil Daniels, do you? But um, No, I was genuinely surprised that it was Phil Daniels. And I think yeah. like just a few years later, after Quadrophenia, you would not have cast Phil Daniels in this role because it's... He's not bad in it, but I don't think it gets to any of the qualities that make him interesting as an actor, really. No, it's a very it's a very second fiddle role. Considering it's yeah. quite a small cast, it's a very second mm. fiddle role for him, isn't it? It's like her wannabe boyfriend. Yeah, know, yeah. Um, who sort of helps her sort of break in and the suggestion that his dad was in prison or something. That's how he knows how to to break into BBC television sets. <laughs> yes. Fair enough. You know? Yeah, it used to be. It's like the knowledge for black cab drivers, isn't it? If you want to be a burglar, yeah. you've got to know how to break into BBC television centre. <laughs> There's got to be a specific number of buildings in London that you can break into. One of them just happens to be <laughs> TV centre. When Michael Fagan broke into Buckingham Palace, what people don't realise is he was just doing the knowledge of burglary, really. (laughs) (laughs) What people don't realise is he actually thought he was getting into the studio for uh, going live. He wanted to steal Gordon the gopher. (laughs) (laughs) Just happened to come in the Queen's ear, that's all. (laughs) (laughs) 
Man, the first draft of that Smith song was a very different affair, wasn't it? Definitely, um, definitely. <laughs> but part of the story, and this goes back to the idea, as you were saying, of Wilcox as being this, like, at least double threat. Um, mm. Part of the story is told in the musical numbers. There are several musical numbers, and there's a clear progression through them from Toya and Phil sort of haplessly rehearsing this song that they want to play to the one that Dixie the Session Museum plays through to. And I'm surprised this didn't derail Toya Wilcox's punk career before it began. Through to a closing number with her singing with a band who the end credits inform us were actually called Bilbo Baggins. Yeah, again, it's it's punk, but it's not punk, is it? It we're it really, really on the is. cusp. We're really on the cusp here, aren't we? And it's this weird marriage <laughs> of both what would soon become opposing forces that yeah. are sort of like working side by side to each other. Bilbo Baggins, what a oh <laughs> I can just see the loom pants now, can't you? you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> smell I... the smell the patchouli oil and see the loom pants, yeah. They're one of those bands where as soon as you hear their name, you can probably imagine what their logo looked like. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's like a, a quick aside. Remember the Really Wild show in the 80s yeah, with uh, yeah. Terry Nutkins yeah. and Chris Packham? I used to say that uh, Terry Nutkins and Chris Packham both looked like roadies, except Terry Nutkins <laughs> was, a, a, was a roadie for Gentle Giant, whereas Chris Packham was a roadie for The Clash. <laughs> Yes, that's very good. Yeah, that's very true. I could just see Nutkins hauling some some uh, some gear and equipment for Gentle Giants, definitely. Well, Chris Packham still feels like one of the best case scenarios for what an old punk should turn out like, I think. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah. 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 Um, he feels more punk than Toya Wilcox does here, which is like, not in an unpleasant way, by the way. Like, I imagine that maybe if this had been, like, I don't know how popular this was at the time, but maybe if this had been more widely seen, you'd have had a few more people giving her a hard time over it when she uh, launched a punk career. But ultimately you watch it now and you think well it's an acting role she's acting even when she's singing she's acting and i think she manages to find a voice for Sue's, a singing voice for sue that isn't like toya wilcox's own singing voice but makes sense for yeah. that character i think a couple of years later she did um an episode of shoestring which afforded her something similar that she was a punk singer so she gets to act the role of the punk singer in that episode and she also gets mm -hmm. to perform various numbers including one that uh, wraps the the show up and shoestring was always that weird i don't know if i'm going off on one but shoestring was always that weird sort of cross between sort of like a hippie and a punk you know it, it, the, the whole character mm -hmm. had that kind of weird uh vibe going on he was sort of in between one or the other in a way that toy wilcox singing supported by Bilbo Baggins just doesn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Because I think that the song that she sings with Daniels, even though they are sort of fumbling through it, and that's part of the point, uh, but she's really good singing. She has a really clear, folky, almost sort of Sandy Denny style voice, which I did not expect coming from her, but it's really good. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Um, Did you get a handle on the story? Because I struggle with the story. It's one of those ones, isn't it, where it, there is a certain kind of British television play where you were half expecting the ending to be, and they all ended up realising it was purgatory. And this is very much one of those, isn't it? It's not yeah. a naturalistic drama in a lot of ways. I mean, when we when you open today, saying it's like hauntology, you know, there's that there is that spooky undercurrent to this. Um, and it's yeah. it's right there from like Edmonds just appearing in like a a cloud of of sort of light, you know, behind the spotlights and that, and um, this disembodied voice, uh, um, and then he goes behind the the set and picks up a postcard, but it's huge. Yes, and then it's dead that small in his hands gone. again, and I wonder is it some kind of is it supposed to be some kind of Alice in Wonderland riff? Oh, maybe, that's, yeah. That's the only thing I could sort of take from it, that it was it was some sort of Alice in Wonderland and that Phil Daniels is like the white rabbit or something and because he just disappears, doesn't he? Yeah. It's nice. Uh, that's a nice reading of it and I wish the play itself had worked that through a bit more Yeah, because I, I didn't find those magic realist touches as successful as they are in other... TV plays of this era. It's certainly not integrated as well as it is in the work of someone like Dennis Potter or David Rudkin, for example. Exactly, yeah. I mean, I must admit, I'm not a big fan of the writer here, uh, Tony Bicat. Mm-hmm. I've seen, if, if he did another Second City's first called Trotsky is Dead, um, mm-hmm. which isn't particularly great. And I've seen yeah. a couple of things from him. He did a play for today called A Cotswold Death, which is sort of like a... It That's a wants, kind of Sherlock Holmes riff, isn't it? Yeah, it wants to be this idea of like an update of the golden age of murder, but in the 80s. So you kill a guy off who, who owns a mansion house, but hey, guess what? He's an Arab sheikh, you know? And it's just... Yeah. It's that kind of... It... Oh, I mean, it, it it doesn't mean to be racist, I'm sure, but watch now, you think, oh, you, it's that attitude of like, oh, the Arabs are taking over, you know, that kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. undercurrent attitude that sort of happened. But it did, I mean, it gave Ian Richardson a, a chance to do Sherlock Holmes before he actually did play Sherlock Holmes. So that's mm. something. Uh, but yeah, I'm not a big fan of him as a, as a writer, really. Um, yeah. I I, did, I I haven't seen any of his other things, but I can see it in here. Yeah, he did do a really interesting uh, directing job on a film called Skin Flicker, that's written by Howard oh, Brenton. Yeah. That's that's yeah. the only thing I would. That's the only thing that's that I've been impressed by of his. Really, the other stuff I've seen up to now, I'm not really impressed with. Like I say, I think there is a magical realism thing at play here. Um, the idea that she just sort of seems to just flip between the top of the pop studio back to her mum's kitchen, you know, there's all that. But yeah. you, 
it's like knitting fog. You can't really grasp hold of what where the through line is in in the in the drama, really. Yeah, and I think there's there's two problems with it. I think firstly that those jumps in reality aren't integrated as well as they are in something. I mean, as you know, I've recently watched uh, White Lady. The only thing that yeah, eighties um... that covers. Yeah, screenplay wasn't it? Yes, I think it was. Yeah, 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 and that covers even more conceptual ground than this but it does it in a way that feels really disciplined and unified i think still really fresh as well yeah whereas this is just yeah i think the best way to describe this if you read the premise like i say if you read the premise of it you think oh this is like a really uh balls to the wall punky you know let's get rid of everything in Mm. the past it's like i'm i'm breaking into top of the pops you know uh, I mean, it's, there's even that song. Everybody's on top of the pops, isn't it? It's it's, it's that kind of. You would imagine on that top kind of facilities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'd imagine it's going to be that kind of vibe, and what you get instead is a weird kind of episode of drama rama for children's bit, ITV. Yeah, yeah. It's... I think one of the sort of foundational problems with it, apart from like what I think of B Cat's writing is that I don't think B-Cat has enough insight into pop fandom of this age to to really dig under the surface of it. It reminded me a bit, even though you know this is a very different film, but have you ever seen, uh, what's it called? Is it Song to Song, the Terence Malick film? Don't think I have, no. Does it ring a bell? It's the one he, it's the one he part shot at Austin City Limits, and it's got a lot of musician cameos in it. We'll probably do it on pop screen at some point, um, if only because it's always a good idea to re-watch a Terence Malick film. But mm-hmm. on the first watch, I remember thinking, uh, I, I just kept going through it and thinking there were parallels that you could have uncovered in this, but rock music and dance music just isn't his terrain. And... Mm-hmm. As a result, it's not like it's expressly wrong, just like I don't think Glitter is expressly wrong, but it's missing things. You think there are things going on at the time you're doing this that fit very well with the themes you're trying to push, but, yeah, and you're not yeah. getting them. Yeah, it's it's somebody, like like you said earlier, it's somebody who's just not part of that scene, writing it, really. Mm. Um, and that's where it starts to unravel because of it. But I think there is still uh, a lot of interesting things to it. I think every time I go back to these sort of play for today and Wednesday play and screenplay and stuff like that, I'm always just amazed at how they could manage, that they could marshal resources to tell something so small. And it must have been great for actors where it's like, you know, nowadays a good acting job is getting to deliver some of the exposition in a superhero film. <laughs> but then you would open up the radio times and it's like, tonight's play, a middle-aged housewife has regrets while buttering her toast. And you think, well, that's just sort of, it's, it's just you on screen for ages yeah. and it's proper acting. It's like just one step removed from going to see them on stage when no one is even editing, you know. Yeah. It's it's really indulgent towards actors in a way that I really like. 
Yeah, it's definitely an actor's medium at this time, really. Mm. An, an actor and a writer's medium, as opposed to... Yeah. Um, I don't know what I don't know what you could describe it now. I don't even know if I could safely describe it as a director's medium. It's just oh, I definitely yeah. I don't think television's a director's medium at all. I think there was a time when it was still a vice's medium, but now it's not even that. Now it's a showrunner's medium, which is yeah horrible, yeah, deathly, yeah. in my opinion. I mean, it's funny you should say that. I mean, again, uh, we're recording it this week. Uh, the um, new drama series Marriage with Sean Bean and Nicola Walker has just started to appalling, oh, yeah. appalling reviews. Uh, totally yeah. unnecessarily appalling reviews because I absolutely adored it. But then again, I'm a huge Mike Lee fan. And the writer, um, Stefan something or other, I can't think of it. It's a long Polish name. Golowitsky, yes. something like that. He's wrote like that, Mum and Him and Her, and they're all very mightily influenced. Um, but this is proper sort of like play for today type um, drama in the sense yeah. that it's it's half finished sentences and just sort of like yeah. shrugs and there's no drama in it. It's the bits in between the drama. It's and that's what I love. You know, I love stuff like that. Yeah. It is it is buttering your toast and thinking about where you've gone wrong in life, you know. Yeah, and yeah. I I could happily watch that all the time, but people nowadays yeah. are used to Line of Duty, Peaky Blinders. Nothing wrong with those shows, but sometimes you just want a bit of light and shade. You don't it doesn't yeah. need to be explosion, 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 urgency, exposition all the time. Yeah, I think most modern shows, it's like it's TV used to have a five-act structure and now it's a five-twist structure, isn't it? If there yeah. haven't been five big twists by the end of an episode, everyone comes away feeling cheated. But it's getting so cliched, though, now, I think. Yeah. It's, it's, so, it's, it's so run to the ground that you mm. just you see anything with a star in it now on, on television, you think, well, he's going to be dead by the end of episode four at the very yeah, you know, and and true enough, it happens. You know, <laughs> he's like, right, okay, fair yeah. enough. It's it's so predictable, and there's got somebody's got to hit a reset button sooner or later. And unfortunately, I don't think mm. the the reaction, the reception that marriage has got so far, I don't think that's the reset button. But it should be. It absolutely yeah. should be. And we should be making things like Second City Firsts again. You know, it's, it's yeah, shocking. The only people who were permitted to do this now were Rishi Smith and Steve Pemberton, and they're doing a fantastic job on it, but they can't do it alone. No, that's it. I mean, they are doing, don't get me wrong, they are doing a fantastic, a fantastic job on it. But yeah. Absolutely. Even I'm thinking, even I'm thinking some, some recent episodes of Inside Number Nine are just showing signs of fatigue to me. Not all I'm, of them. Yeah, I, I, I thought the last season was a really strong one, but I just I do think after seven seasons, it should be hitting a point where you can say, "All right, we've shown that this can work. We've shown that this can still get an audience. We've shown that people still watch this now. Why not throw the doors open? Why not have something like, as you say, Second City Firsts, where young writers are given a bunch of restrictions." And you say, there you go. If you can work with those restrictions and on a tight budget, we'll make your script. That sounds yeah. like the ideal way that television should work to me, and yet it Absolutely. doesn't. Absolutely. But I think the thing is as well, 
it's that idea of going to the unknown, young writers, mm. untested writers. Yeah. They won't uh, do it anymore. Whereas yeah. Rishi Smith and Steve Pemberton, their names, they know what they're getting. They know they're getting a certain script from them. They know they're getting them on screen. So it's yeah, it's familiarity, and they don't realise that that breeds contempt in the long run. And I think one of the other reasons why this doesn't exist anymore is because television is such an international business now that it makes things like Play for Today and Second City First essentially worthless because the concept of the show is that there isn't a concept. You know, yeah. Even with Inside Number 9, you had that really weird story about, was it Amazon bought the rights to make an American version of it? And you think, what have you oh, bought? Well. Yeah, I didn't know that. I didn't know Amazon. Had, uh, that's weird. That's strange. What, what is it? You know, the only concept in Inside Number Nine is deliberately throwaway. The fact that every episode is set inside something that's got a nine on it is totally irrelevant to what the show is actually about. Yeah. But nevertheless, I, you have to assume the richest man in the world has just paid top dollar for exactly that. Mm, I suppose so, yeah. But I guess even that as a concept as such, because they'll say, "Oh, do you remember the Twilight Zone?" You know, and the, the, yeah. So, but I mean, the genius of that show is that it doesn't always give you that. It it no, will no. play around with its format. I mean, one of the ones I I really enjoyed recently, and you you gonna you gonna nod your head as soon as I say it because you're just gonna know. I knew you'd say that. But it's it's um, Love's Great Adventure from about two stu- two series back. I'm going, to the one with... I'm going to say I love that episode too. Hey, that to me is like, <laughs> watching, that's like a Ken Loach inside number nine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there was no twist. There was no, well, there was a twist, yeah, but there was no sinister going. Mm. I remember listening to the podcast after it because they do um, an inside, inside number nine podcast, don't they? And yeah. um, they were saying about how they reckon it's going to sort of mess with people's minds that it is just a straightforward story about a loving family trying to mm. get uh, a damaged, addicted son back into the fold. And um, yeah. the Reese Shearsmith says his character is sort of like giving the daughter driving lessons. Um, he said, I know that I'm going to come in and be like, oh, she's done very well. You know, and people are going, oh, he's going to be a creepy, seedy, paedophile uncle. Isn't he? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> because it's just yes. because it's Reece Shearsmith and it's inside number nine. And he <laughs> just, you expect it, don't you? <laughs> but that tone, that, that thing, which is one of the, even as you say, when it doesn't occur, that's one of the strongest elements of the show, that dark comic aspect. That's one of the things everyone associates it with. And that isn't part of the format. That's just what Shia Smith and Pemberton like to write. Yeah. And yeah, yeah it, it's it's just, it's such a sort of light formatted thing that I don't know how you could make a TV producer see dollar signs when it's no people who, as you say, have this incredible track record. It's if 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 me and you say two people with with no background went to the mm. BBC and, and pitched that very same idea, you'd never get it off the ground at all. It's yeah, because they yeah. did. It's because they did League of Gentlemen before it. Mm. So they say, well, what have these two guys got? They're a proven track record. You know, that's all yeah. it boils down to. Whereas. 
sixties and seventies television and eighties television was about just giving an opportunity to somebody. Some of these people never wrote again. You know, they they you know, they have their like one shining moment yeah. and you can dig that out and it still works. Yeah. Yeah. They may never, they may never even have wanted to write again. It might have just been a, a question of, well, I fancy a bit of writing. You know, they do the odd bit of Bob. They might have a radio script or something like that, and then it becomes a TV script on Second City Firsts or Play for Today or something, and that's it. They they go off and get an ordinary job at the end of it instead. Yeah, but nowadays it's all about serialization, which is why. I'm going to do something we've never done before. Ooh. I'm going to end this episode of Pop Screen and move it over to our Patreon, where Ooh. you can hear the second half of our Second City First retrospective about uh, the 1974 play Squire by Tom Pickard. Uh, starring, starring Alan Hull from Lindisfarne. Alan Hull, yes. Yeah. So that's uh, on our Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash The Geek Show tomorrow. But until then, that's been your lot from Pop Screen. I've been Graham. Blobby, blobby, blobby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if that doesn't get you donating, listeners, I don't really know what will. But... I've been Mark. There you go. <laughs> I'll play your game, <laughs> you capitalist bastard. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll see you next week.